We're gonna go ahead and get started. Session 17 is where we're at, uh, large point two. We're in the book of Acts chapter 11. Uh, I think we will start by doing a quick recap of where we're at, uh, because it's been a couple weeks since we first started into this section. So a quick recap of what's been going on. Uh, we have Simon Peter, who is in, gosh, it's Jerusalem, right? Pretty sure it's Jerusalem off the top of my head. Um, he's in Jerusalem, and he goes up on top of his house to pray. And he's praying, and all of a sudden he's, he gets hungry. And in the middle of preparing this meal, he sees a vision. It looks like a sheet descending on the earth, and Peter looks into this sheet, and he sees in it all these different multitudes of animals, all different kinds, birds, reptiles, and just everything, all the common and including even the unclean animals that Jews would typically not partake of the meat. And he hears the voice of God saying, uh, Peter, take this, kill, and eat. And Peter says, oh, not me, Lord, never me. No, nothing common or unclean has ever passed my lips. And God says, what I have made clean, do not call common. And this happens three times, three being the, the number of holiness, signifying that this is indeed a vision from God. Uh, meanwhile, there is a man, a, uh, a centurion, who typically is uh, of Roman descent and is not Jewish, is a Jew. The centurion is a Jew named Cornelius uh, from the Italian cohort. He's a devout man, and so on and so forth. Um, and he says, and the Lord sends him a messenger, an angel, and says, hey, you need to find a guy named Simon Peter and bring him to you. He's going to preach to you. And that's it. Not a whole lot more is said to him. All he knows is, well, got to find Simon Peter. So he sends three men, goes and finds Simon Peter. So, Directly after this vision that Simon Peter has of this sheet descending, the three men show up and they say, we're looking for Simon Peter, uh, the centurion, who, he's a Jew, don't worry, he's not here to, to capture you or to put you to the death or anything like that, he's looking for you and he wants you to come and, and talk to him. And so Peter, who has just received this vision in preparation for this, goes, okay, well, in his mind, he thinks, I'm not supposed to be talking with people who aren't Jewish. We're not supposed to be intermingling like this. But according to this vision that I just received from the Lord, this is okay. The message is, is for everyone. The gospel of Christ is for everyone, uh, not just the Jews. So Peter goes with them. He goes, all right, well... Got to do what you got to do. So he goes and he gets to Cornelius and Cornelius, what does he do? He bows down and starts worshiping Simon Peter. And Peter's like, hey, what are you doing? Get up. And he goes, oh, uh, okay. He's like, so I'm here. You got a vision. I got a vision. I'm here. And Cornelius is like, yeah, so uh, neither of them really know exactly what's going to happen because... They both just got this vision that they're supposed to go and do this. Cornelius says, I brought all my friends, my family, my whole household here. So what do you got to say to us? And what does Peter do? 
He preaches a sermon. He goes, okay, well, here we go. I got this vision. Uh, no, no longer is this Jewish faith just for the Jews. This is for everyone. Everything that Jesus taught us is not just for the Jews. This is for you too. This is for Greeks. This is for everyone on the earth. That's what this vision was telling me, is that what God has made clean, don't call common. And he preaches the, uh, the gospel to Cornelius, and Cornelius and his entire household gets baptized. They all hear the word, and they all get baptized. Uh, so now we find ourselves... In Acts chapter 11, last week we talked a little bit about what happens when Peter goes back to Jerusalem. So in in verse 2 of chapter 11 we have, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order. And that is where we're picking up today. We have the circumcision party who is accusing Peter, their pastor, of sin, of of heresy, of dining with sinners and uncircumcised people, with Greeks. So that's where we are picking up today. And we're going to talk a lot about the promise being for all and not simply for God's chosen people. So open your Bibles to 11. We'll start with verse 4 with Nick over here. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Java praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheep descending, being led down from heaven by its four quarters, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds, of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean had ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. They sat there the And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. All right, so this is the third time now that this is uh, being related um, to us through the hand of Luke here in the book of Acts. The first time was when Peter initially received this vision, and it told us all about the vision that he saw it three times. Peter then tells Cornelius about what he saw. Uh, and now, for the third time, we're being told about this vision. Peter is telling the brothers back in Jerusalem, at the church in Jerusalem, explaining 
all of this to them saying, listen, this is really important. Uh, you know, there are lots of visions throughout the Bible. We've seen several in Acts already. The fact that this one is being told to us three times over and over, uh, this really signifies that this is a big deal. This is kind of a new teaching to them at the time. Uh, because for thousands and thousands of years, the Jews were told what by God? Not to eat the animals that were unclean. Right. Um, and for what purpose? What, why was, like, what was the overall reason why the Jews had that command uh, along with others as well? To be separate from other people. They were God's chosen. Exactly. For thousands and thousands of years, uh, God repeatedly told them, you are my chosen people, you are my people. He preserved the Jews, he preserved the Israelites throughout so many huge cat catastrophes and disasters and wars and, and famine and plague and conflicts over and over and over. God was protecting these people. They've had it ingrained in their minds for thousands of years. We are God's people. All of this is for us. Uh, our God is the God of Israel. That is, that's just the way that it was. This God is the God of Israel. No one else, just us. So this is their mindset uh, at, at this point still. Because this is directly after the death of Jesus. Only like really in the ministry of Jesus was Jesus trying to... Uh, pound into their minds that, listen, while, yes, you Jews, you Israelites, uh, were the chosen people, the promise is really for everyone. Salvation is going to come to the entire world, not just to the Jews. The Jews were set aside for a very specific purpose. What was that purpose? Bring the to bring the Savior. Because throughout all of these conflicts and wars and everything that they went through, they were preserved for that one specific purpose, to fulfill the promise of God uh, that Jesus would come through that line. So this is all pretty new to them. It's only been within the past few years for them that this has started to be taught. Jesus has been preaching this for just a few years, then he went away, and now the disciples are here spreading this same message of the promise being for everyone and teaching them about the purpose of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So understandably so at this point, all these people go up to Peter being like, what are you doing? Because this isn't something that men just came up with, that they were not supposed to be associating with Greeks or non-Jews or anything like that. This is all like the command of God. This is all real stuff. So understandably so, they go back to Jerusalem and or Peter gets back to Jerusalem. They go up to him and say, why are you associating with these guys? You know, you are an apostle of Christ. You're supposed to be the best of the best. You're our pastor. What are you doing? You're messing everything up. And that's when Peter tells them about this very important vision that has very real implications for this entire church, his entire ministry, and the entire faith moving forward in time. This this changes everything so much. The promise is not just for the Israelites. This is for everyone. 
So that's, that's the significance of, of this event is this is really driving home the fact that this isn't just for you anymore. This is for the entire world. Uh, we're going to talk about the book of Luke. So if we'll turn to Luke chapter 15. Um, I think that we'll read this in, in sections here. So from verse 1 through 7, we'll read the first, the parable of the lost sheep. So maybe if one person wants to read that, we'll read each section. That might make it go a little bit quicker for us. Now as the tax collectors and sinners were all drawn here to hear him, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And then he has found and when he has found it, he lays lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. All right. Uh, and then the parable of the lost coin. Or what, um, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angel of God over one sinner who repents. And then, Pastor, maybe if you want to read the parable of the prodigal son, since it's a bit longer. Sure. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in a reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. So in all of these parables, especially uh, the prodigal son here, his son, he went off and he was engaging in all kinds of you know, debauchery and all this different stuff. Through all that, did he ever stop being the man's son? No. He still loved him, even though he was, he was off doing all these terrible things. Um, so Jesus had this same idea, and this is what he was teaching to all people throughout his ministry too. So this idea here that Peter is telling to everyone, this is not really new, but when you're learning something that is you know, different to what you've known for your entire life and, and everything before that, do you just immediately accept this idea? No, that's, that's really rare that someone just, you know, when you change your mind about something, you just go, oh, yeah, that's a good point. I'll just, you know, that's fine. We'll do that. It takes a long time. You've got to think about it and, and consider it and, and really go over it and, and learn it thoroughly. Ken? It's like, well, the sky really isn't blue. It's red, and, and you better believe it. Right. I mean, it's like, I kind of think it's that kind of a contrast. It, yeah, it's, it's being told something uh, completely different from what they've known their entire life, and they're not ready to just accept it right away. Even being told by the Son of God, Jesus, uh, people were not ready to just accept this, because this is new to them, not the way they've understood anything for the longest time. Uh, so now they're, they're being taught over and over and over again, but this is nothing new. The point is that even though the son, the prodigal son, went off and he was engaging in all these sinful acts and everything, he never stopped being the man's son. Even though all the people outside of the Jews had all gone off and, and they were uh, 
worshiping their pagan gods or their government or, or Caesar or all these different false idols and everything like Leonard, what we've been talking about in Habakkuk, all the false idols that are, you know, just carved by hands and then overlaid with gold and people go, oh, yes, this is where our God dwells. Even though all these things have been happening, does that mean that those people are not still God's people? No. That's the point that's being made here over and over and over and has to be reiterated so many times. Yes, the Jews are God's chosen people, chosen not for salvation, but chosen for the specific purpose of uh, Christ coming from their lineage. The promise of salvation is not simply for the Jews, it's for everyone. Do we have any questions on that before we go on to the next section? Even people from Missouri? Especially people from Missouri. Sinners need Christ. <laughs> they, <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> all right, we'll keep going uh, in Acts chapter 11, going from uh, 15 to verse 18. Okay, so before Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, referring, now, Pastor, you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's a couple different views on this, this saying of Jesus or, or the way that this is understood. Um, and I believe that our view here in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church is that Jesus was referring to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come on them and they would be speaking in tongues and, and proclaiming the message to everyone, which, and I'm going to go, I'm gonna go on, off on that for a second. So the priests at the time were very adamant about one specific language being used in the temple. Whenever uh, sacrifices were made or wave offerings were made, um, I read this section in the Lutheran Study Bible just a little bit ago. There's a section on wave offerings and, and sacrifices being made in the temple that I recommend you read. Very short read, but very interesting. If you have the Lutheran Study Bible, uh, I'd look for that little article that they put in there somewhere. I can get the page number for you if you're interested. Uh, but whenever they were making offerings, they would be chanting psalms or different songs from the Bible, uh, but only in one specific language, Hebrew. 
It always, always had to be said in Hebrew. They always had to say these things in Hebrew. Uh, so, like when they were doing a wave offering, for example, and they were done all kinds of different ways. Um, in this article that I read, it talked about how they would be bringing a basket of like bread or whatever, and they'd go up to the priest and they'd be chanting these psalms together in Hebrew, and they would wave the bread around in the, in the air to show that this is a wave offering, this is a sacrifice to God. Uh, and that was just always very strict. It was always about Hebrew. But then, on Pentecost, when all these apostles were speaking in all these different languages, not just in Hebrew, this is, again, proclaiming this message that the gospel is for the entire world. This is not just for the people of Israel. This is not just for the Jews. This is for uh, everyone. Um, Pastor, I, I don't know a whole lot about the topic of people making a distinction between John's baptism and the baptism of Jesus. Is that something that you want to talk about at all? It's something where we will talk about it because they're going to come across people who have been baptized by John but haven't received the Holy Spirit. And they're going to have to figure out what to do about this. And what it really that all comes down to is, have they heard the whole word about Jesus crucified and risen, and thereby also begun to gather as church with the pastor preaching the word and the people hearing the word? When we're talking about the Holy Spirit in this way, that's really what the distinction is later on, and that we'll talk about it a little bit there. So, John the Baptist baptized for what purpose? Repentance. Repentance. Um, repentance. And uh, Christ comes along, and he dies and rises again, and he sends out his disciples to baptize as well. But when Jesus sends his disciples out, Matthew 28, what does he also tell them to do? Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I have commanded you. So what goes with the baptism? The Word. The Word. And the Word is about what? About Jesus. About Jesus. And because we're Christians who believe the Scriptures, whenever God's Word is preached and taught in its truth and purity, who is attached to that? The Holy Spirit, right? It was always, always attached to the Word. So the disciples are going out and they're preaching and they're baptizing. And in this, God is working to create faith in the Christians. And so even this text here, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit baptize someone? Is it like the Pentecostals believe? He's floating around. We, I, should I pick on you, Nick? Okay. Nick, in the Pentecostal church, where is the Holy Spirit located? Out there. <laughs> right. Just kind of floating around. And he might come upon you. And how would you know? Well, you have evidences of that. One of the evidences. 
Speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues, uh, or interpreting tongues, or some sort of a spiritual gift. For us, we don't have to get into those things because we believe when God's word is coming, what is happening? The Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit's coming upon you to call, gather, enlighten, and sanctify you to the Christian church. I don't know if I've answered the question or not. Yeah, no, that that's exactly what I was going for, and that there's there's all kinds of uh, different views on this, but we want to make sure that we hold the correct view because this is important. This is doctrine. This is not uh, Holy Spirit coming upon you, speaking in in tongues like the language of the angels, a bunch of gibberish and stuff like that. Uh, I, I was asking Nick because Nick used to be in the Pentecostal <laughs> church. I wasn't trying to sing them out or anything, but that way I make sure I'm saying the yeah. correct thing about their, their belief. Right. And there's lots and lots of churches, especially here in the United States, where the Holy Spirit is kind of this um, floating around thing that you might catch, you might not, you might have to invite them in, you might not do that. You know, there's a whole realm of uncertainty about where the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing. Kind of like a ghost thing? Yeah, almost, you know, like, you know, in your living room, sometimes the ghost is there walking around, sometimes he's not right, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what we are, are kind of, that's what we always preach against is uncertainty. You've heard Poppy say over and over and over, our God is not a God of uncertainty. He's a God of certainty. We know for certain that when you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, that your sins certainly are forgiven. How do we know that? It's not like Nick was talking about, all these different signs of speaking in tongues or anything like that, we know that for certain because it's a promise of God. Uh, a promise that is for everyone. We know these things for certain because this is the word of God and everything God says is true, it's perfect, it's holy. So it's all about uh, certainty. Was there something else? It looked like you had something else. That... I was just going to say that's why it's so important that we hold our pastors to a very high standard in speaking God's word because the Holy Spirit is attached to God's word when it's preached and taught in its truth and purity. And it's so tempting for us to take God's word out of context and use it uh, to make it say what we want to, right? So a good example of that would be, I could quote you God's word two places. Judas went and hanged himself. Jesus said, go and do likewise. <laughs> Those are both in God's word. Okay? Is that what God desires? <laughs> no. And so we have to make sure we're using the word the right way. And you have to help hold your pastors and vicars accountable to that. 
And when we make mistakes, which we do because we're sinful people, God talk to us about it so that we can repent and, and preach about it. Amen. So how do they resolve the difference between these two baptisms? How did, say how that did, again? How do they resolve that, that difference? Uh, with the word. I think that's, that's, uh, that's what we were talking about, is, is that John, he was baptizing people and, and teaching them the things that he knew so far. Uh, and now, when they come across these people that John baptized and, and taught, they didn't always have the full story of Jesus' uh, death and his resurrection and everything. So they would continue to preach the word to them. And so they get the Spirit then after Right, right. Through the preaching of the word which the spirit is always attached to the word. Uh, so that's how they resolved it. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. Um, going back to our, our study then, this indicates that this is a foundational verse for the church, not in an evangelical sense, but in teaching that baptism is important. Because that's what a lot of people will say is, you know, oh, baptism just makes you a wet Christian. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that indicates that in the scripture at all. There is nothing in, in the scripture that says things like baptism is just an outward sign of an inward change. Everywhere that baptism is talked about in scripture, it's something that is very real, very important, and something that's done immediately all around preaching sermons and teaching people and everything. When Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he preached them a sermon, and they all believed, and he said, well, do you, does anyone here see any reason for them not to be baptized? No. Well then, and he baptized the entire household. This isn't just uh, in some kind of inward change trying to show God that you're willing to accept his word or anything. This is a, a really real thing that really does do Exactly what God says. Forgive sins. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the why behind everything. Can I pause for a second here? Just 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard that used as that's the day you were saved. And I've kind of learned to disagree that I was saved in 32 AD. It's, uh, that's kind of gets to be a complicated topic because of semantics and exactly um, Timelines on everything. Oh, well, when were you saved? When were you saved? We would say that the saving work of Christ happened on the cross when he died on the cross and he shed his blood to atone for our sins. And then we would say that saving work of Christ, the righteousness that he earned by his death on the cross, is then applied to us maybe at a, a specific time. That would be baptism. Or maybe that's when it started 
After you are baptized, then, what happens? Well, you continue to go to church, you hear preaching, you uh, hear the word, and you do what other really important thing, like after confirmation, you receive the Lord's Supper. You receive the forgiveness of sins found in the Lord's Supper. Um, so it's a hard topic to talk about because other denominations have different views on exactly how this happened. Because, for example, Baptists with decision theology will say, Oh, I remember when I was saved. I was saved. I was laying in bed crying over something, and I was cursing God, but then all of a sudden he gave me this revelation, and I said, you know what? I am living wrong, and I just, I really want to accept Jesus into my heart. So then I was laying in bed, and I just said, Jesus, please come into my life and save me. And I accepted Jesus, and then I was saved. And then they'll talk about, you know, some kind of mountaintop experience that happened to them, and that's when they were saved, and everything like that. And they go, that that doesn't really ring a bell with anything that the Bible says. There's, there's no time in the Bible when someone is like, ah, oh, yes, I accept Jesus, I invited him into my heart, and now I'm saved. I have a question. Barb? Well, okay, we're talking about Cornelius and his family, right? So he was a Jew, and so who was going to teach his family? You know, like we have church, you know, when, we're, when we baptize a baby, bring your kids to church and you teach them about the Lord. But what about people like that in those days? Where, how do they continue to follow the faith? That's a great question because uh, they didn't have certain things, right? We, they, don't have, they didn't have the same Bible that we had, no. that we have right now today. You know, we have all the New Testament. And a lot of them couldn't read anything, right? Right, that too. Uh, books in general were not um, we're not found in just like a room off to the side there. Um, but the Old Testament is all about who and what? Jesus. Jesus. Uh, so in more rural areas where they d didn't all get together and go to synagogue and stuff, they would still have all the teachings of the Old Testament to teach them all about Jesus and how everything in the Old Testament applied to Jesus and his entire life, all the prophecies about his entire life. Uh, but also, as we'll go along here and read, the apostles and all the other disciples, because it wasn't just the 12 apostles, right? Uh, there was a multitude of brothers that were all there and hearing the teaching and also becoming pastors and everything. Uh, they all dispersed all around the area and went to synagogues and taught the Jews and everything like that too. So uh, especially a place like Caesarea, where Cornelius is, there would be pastors going there and preaching to the synagogues and continuing to teach about the life of Jesus as well. Um, so I believe that's what, that's what would happen, though I don't think it specifically says that. Is that right, Pastor? Okay. Does that answer your question? Temple Mount to worship. And this is going to come to a head a little bit with St. Paul. 
who's going to be arrested and accused of being a Gentile, even though he's not. Uh, there is a, um, what would you call it, a barrier that was uh, around the central part of the Temple Mount with a sign that said, if you're a Gentile and you cross this barrier, you'll be put to death. Uh, so the Gentile Christians wouldn't have gone in there, but the Christians would have met. Um, there's a very tall, uh, enclosed area called a stoa uh, on the south side of the Temple Mount, and then also around the entirety of the Temple Mount, there was a smaller version of that, where there was a colonnaded space, and the Christians would have met in Jerusalem in there, they would have met uh, a lot in people's houses, and they would have started to form congregations in that way to meet specifically as Christians. And when the Roman War comes in 68, 69, and 70 AD, that's really where there's a much larger distinction between the Christian population and the Jewish population. Um, because the Christians have listened to Christ's word, it says, when you see the armies come and run for the hills. Uh, and, and so there is that, that distinction that begins more so at that time. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, Romans then became Christians, didn't they? They were. Right. And when we get to the last... So why would you run away from them? When we get to the last half <laughs> of... Um, well, you know, they might be your people. You know? <laughs> In ancient warfare, it was a lot of siege warfare. You don't want to get stuck on the inside of the siege, even if you're on the side of the people on the outside. You want to stay away uh, so that you live. Um, or something else I was going to say, but it's gone. So in other words, it wasn't very easy for the Christians initially. Not for hundreds of years. Yeah. Not for hundreds of years. So it's kind of amazing that the church survived, right? It is. Um, and yet, what, I hate to just say it's the only evidence, but uh, what does it tell us? That God's in the field. Right. Not the only evidence, but certainly uh, adds to the evidence, we could say. Um, okay, so the fact that this promise of salvation and forgiveness of sins that Christ won on the cross um, is for everyone, there is a very good way to determine if. Uh, you need forgiveness of sins. And what is that? How do you know if you need to be forgiven? To recognize your sin. To recognize your sin. If you, uh, if you sin, you need forgiveness. Plain and simple. Um, pardon? Not if. <laughs> right. That's the kind of the tongue-in-cheek part of it is if you sin. As if, right? Uh, as if anyone didn't. Nick, could I ask you to uh, open up to Romans chapter 3? Um, and then, Barb, would you be able to open up to Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20? So, here's the discussion that I, I would like to have a little bit. Um, 
first, Barb, whenever you're there, let me know and, and you can read. So in high school, here's a little peek into how 28, what? 28 verse 18 through 20. Uh, in high school, my best friend at the time was, he is, he is such a great guy, one of the best guys I've ever met. Very patient, athletic, smart, just an awesome guy all around. Uh, we, hung, we hung out all the time together. And one day he was like, you know, we really need to find something to do when we hang out because we can't just, you know, sit around and, and chit chat all the time. And so he was thinking that, oh, I know we could play catch or we could do this thing over here or go hiking and all that kind of stuff. And, and me being kind of lame was like, oh, I know. How about instead we just have a Bible study? And he was like, oh, yeah, I mean, sure, let's do that. He was non-denominational at the time and went to the Bible church, which one of the members asked me one time, oh, what church do you go to? Oh, I'm a Lutheran. Oh, <laughs> well, here at our Bible church, we just believe in the Bible. We don't do things like pray to Luther and all that weird stuff that you guys do. So I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> Great. So this is, that's the church that he went to. And so we were studying the book of Romans. And we came across awesome verses that talked about baptism. And, of course, he believed that, well, you know, baptism is it's just an outward sign of an inward change and, you know, so on and so forth. It doesn't really do anything for you. It just makes you a wet Christian and all that stuff. And I was like, well, you know. That's really not the way that Jesus talks about baptism. And so we went and read Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And at this time, we were specifically talking about baptizing babies because they didn't believe in infant baptism. Uh, so this is what we read. Barb, if you would. Okay. Now the 11, I'm going to start at 16. Sure. Now the, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some, some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I... I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so we are talking about uh, infant baptism, and I pointed to the words, all nations. I said, all nations, what does that mean? Because to me, it means everyone. And are babies part of all nations, a.k.a. everyone? Yes. And he was like, well, to me, when it says all nations, that's just him talking about how the promise isn't for the Jews anymore. You know, forgiveness of sins and salvation, that's, that's for everyone, not just for the Jews. So that's what he means when he says all nations. It's just that everybody needs the promise of salvation. And I said, really? So not just the Jews needed salvation, but the Gentiles too. And he goes, yep. I said, why? Why would the Gentiles need salvation. <laughs> right, because, well, yeah, because they're, they're part of all nations. Um, but 
Why? Why would they need to be saved? Why would their sins need to be forgiven? Why would they need to be baptized? Nick, if you would read from Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 22 to 25. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's kind of the middle of a sentence. Yep. Um, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. If this it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, I said, baby sin. Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. The reason that the Gentiles also need forgiveness of sins is because they sin. And right there, Paul says, all have sinned. So whoever has sinned needs to be forgiven. And how are sins forgiven? Through baptism. And we turn to 1 Peter 3.21, where it says, baptism now saves you. And, and, you know, all the different verses found in the small catechism talking about baptism and everything. And, and we talked about that for a long time and about what all nations means and everything. And, and at the end of it, he was like, huh. Well, I'll just have to think about it for a little while, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I don't know that I ever really convinced him of changing his mind about anything. Uh, but that's, that's just one thing that you can do as an individual is know your Bible a little bit, know your small catechism a little bit, and be prepared to talk to people about these things just from the Bible. You don't have to convince them with your own words. You just present all this information. Well, you know, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, uh, and they'll think about it, and they'll go, huh. And eventually, if you continue to uh, know your Bible and just talk with them casually about it, you don't have to try to pin them down on this or that or the other thing or anything like that. Uh, eventually, then, maybe, the Holy Spirit will soften their heart and they'll come to understand the error of their ways in thinking things like baptism just makes you a wet Christian or uh, speaking in tongues is really the only way to know if the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's, uh, it's a hard business talking to people about Christ and about uh, the Bible and what it really says, but you do yourself a great service by studying it and learning it. Barb? I went to a meeting In other words, you know, just 
some people believe they have to be baptized because that's the thing to do in the church. But really, it's something that God wants us to do to have the Holy Spirit in our lives. So yeah. that really opened my eyes, and I've been a Lutheran since I was two months old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's always great to, uh, to listen to any kind of teachings about that, but always compare it to what the, what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what Martin Luther did, and that was kind of his quote-unquote huge revelation, is comparing all these different things that people said and even things that the church was trying to teach him, he compared it to what the Bible actually said and was like, well, hang on. And Barb, when you heard that about baptism, you probably went to your Bible and, and read about it a little bit and went, you know, maybe that's really right. Maybe baptism isn't something that we do. Baptism isn't just a work. This is God baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. God forgiving us our sins. This is true confession time. <laughs> when I grew up, I grew up with the attitude that I was doing this for God. And it was that statement that Barb just said that changed my mind and convinced me to be a Lutheran. I grew up with a Baptist attitude and I had to believe before I was baptized and all that kind of thing. So that's what changed my well, mind. Well, I was a I was a mother at that point in my life. And I thought I knew everything. <laughs> and it just really, and I think the lady had been a Jehovah Witness at one point in her life. And then had found the word. So it was kind of a neat program that we were in, you know. And it made me understand. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, how many people were born not Lutheran or raised not Lutheran besides me? Yeah, it is. Um, let's see. So, talking about, uh, we can talk about repentance for a couple minutes at least, I think. So, we'll do that for the rest of our time here. Repentance having two parts. First, that you realize that you're in sin. Second, that you believe Jesus forgives that sin on the cross. What does this really mirror very easily? Something that uh, we always model our sermons after. Law and gospel. Law and gospel, right. Law, uh, it shows you your sin. It tells you, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you need Christ. Yes, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then once you realize that, then what does the gospel do? The gospel points you to Christ. Christ is the Savior of the world. He forgives all of your sins. Uh, that's, that's really what law and gospel is all about, is working repentance and then faith, showing you your Savior, savior uh, forgiving you all of your sins. That's what every good sermon should do. I think in my homiletics class, Professor Fikentcher, and he got this from Walther, so it wasn't his idea or anything, but... <laughs> Walther and Professor Fikentcher would always say, uh, you have to treat every single sermon as though it is the only sermon that someone will hear in their entire life. You can't ever just partially 
preach something. You can't just partially uh, give someone the word like, Ah, yes, in this sermon, here's the law. Come back tomorrow night and you'll hear the gospel. You know, every sermon you have to treat it like that's the only sermon that someone will hear. Because that actually could be true. If there's someone that, I'll just visit this church and, uh, and see what goes on. If they just hear the law, then they'll be like, well, I don't want to go to that church. They're just going to tell me that I'm a dirty sinner and that's it. And that's what a lot of people believe about church. I don't want to go to church. They're just going to tell me that I shouldn't be doing everything and that I'm going to hell. Well, any good church and any good sermon is going to tell you that, well, yes, you're no good sinner, but is also going to tell you that Christ forgives you, that he died to save you from all of your sins. Uh, that's, that's what it's all about, is repentance and the fact that God gives you faith in order to believe in the works of Christ. Uh, is there anything that you want to put a cap on there, Pastor, at all, before we close? Okay. Then uh, why don't we stand and sing the doxology to end the class today? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy